Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thank you for tuning in to another new episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, uh, otherwise known as Reformed underscore Lifestyle on Instagram. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram as Undying Light Ministries. There's a page there that just kind of runs to uh, kind of give show updates and things like that. There's not a whole lot of content being driven on that platform just yet, but I'm thinking in the coming months, possibly over the summer, we might do a little bit uh, more with the particular page, but you know, reformed lifestyles kind of where the action is at. That's where I put all my, uh, my theologian posts and things like that. So if you missed the live that I did on Instagram and a couple uh, two weeks ago, I think now, a week and a half ago, um, that's okay. So I'm going to kind of give it in a nutshell for you here because a lot of you who listen to this show may not even follow me on Instagram, and that's okay because I know some people who are Patreons who don't have Instagram, and that's perfectly fine. So what we've been talking about and what I've been kind of talking about in these last couple of weeks amongst my Patreons is how we're going to take some of the teaching, if you would, uh, off of the social media aspect and just drive it towards Patreon only content. So we're going to start doing things that will, uh, be driven strictly for Patreon only. Um, and so reform lifestyle, the page will be there. I'll continue to produce a few posts a day in terms of just theologian quotes and some commentaries. Um, but the bulk of teaching and, um, teaching and other type of content will be strictly for Patreon only. So, you know, I put up a post today kind of explaining, well, not a really a post, but a story highlight explaining what Patreon is. And for those who don't know, uh, in a nutshell, it just allows creators to have a means to which people can come alongside and support them on a monthly basis to help fund whatever they are creating. And they on Patreon, there's all sorts of everything. I mean, if you have an idea, 
you can probably run it through Patreon. Uh, podcasting is a big thing there. Um, there's some podcasters that have north of, you know, oh, goodness, 12,000 plus supporters. I think maybe 14 I saw at the top levels. There's tons of podcasting um, Patreon groups out there. So really what it is, just to give you a, a quick you know, explanation is, is, you know, for this show, and I've said it numerous times, we are listener supported uh, show. And by that, those who support us on Patreon, those funds, whether it's a dollar a month or more, go into producing this show. Uh, it helps buy equipment, helps buy software, takes care of the monthly uh, costs that it takes to uh, host the show and stream it uh, on top of the software net that I use to produce content. Um, so all of that goes to back into the show itself. And so these individuals were gracious enough to come alongside me and this show. And many of them can uh, give a dollar. Many of them give more. And it allows me to continue to produce this show. And uh, and that's why I think at the level that we're at now, we've got 48 Patreons. Um, and so I really want to start pouring more content into their hands um, and giving them more uh, bang for their buck, if you would. So they get the show early. Um, this show is often recorded a few days in advance, and so they'll have an early release on top of getting the video Q&A of me before the show. Um, and then they get to actually watch me record the show, which I don't know why. Some of them like it, I guess. It's kind of interesting for them, but I don't know who would want to stare at my face for an hour. Maybe they just put it <laughs> put it down and then come back to it later, or they'll hear it, you know, they'll listen to it as they're doing things, but uh, I don't blame them for not actually watching the whole thing because uh, I wouldn't want to stare at this face for more than 30 seconds. But anyway, I digress. The uh, They get all of that on top of participation in biweekly Bible studies that I host with my church. And then they can come online with through Zoom and access that. They get access to all my sermon notes ahead of time, uh, school papers that I write, any other theological documents and conversations are all given to them. So, you know, when I meant, when I heard what I said about teaching, we're going to go back and do some, some back to the basics type thing. I just didn't get the traction on Instagram that I thought I would with the Lord's prayer teaching. Um, and I appreciate, I had somebody in my Patreon actually create a beautiful, uh, template to, kind of articulate this teaching and, and it's, I think it's wonderful. Um, but I just, I'm not seeing the overall traction. And so we're going to finish out the Lord's prayer on Instagram, but then after that, everything's going to kind of shift and go towards the Patreon circle. So I think sometime in June, we're going to kick off and we're going to look at a book in the new Testament. And then we're going to go back to a book in the old Testament. We're going to go back and forth between them. And we're going to go verse by verse or section by section, similar to what I did with the Romans commentary last year on reformed lifestyle. So instead of trying to build a post around it, I'm just going to be able to turn and just produce the paper and allow them to read it at their leisure. And I'll probably do that. You know, if we're going to do a big section, I'll probably do it like once a week or something. I haven't really figured out the time schedule yet, but um, I think that's going to be where I put the focus mainly because they help drive this show. Um, and they make it possible for you as a listener to listen to it on a regular basis because it, it, it costs money to run the show and they've been gracious enough to help support this cause. So 
if you are interested, you can always uh, send an email to undyinglightministries at gmail.com. If you're not on Instagram, or you can come on Instagram and hit me up, reformed underscore lifestyle, or the Undying Light Ministries page. Um, you can always hit us up some fashion. Uh, the, I think the in the show notes, uh, I'm going to take a gander here real quick, but I'm pretty sure in the show notes I have... Um, my contact information and if I don't then I'm going to do so because I want to make it uh, available for you to be able to reach out to me if you have questions and I think a lot of you do already so waiting for my show uh, kicked me out again so I'm going to resubmit this to my platform my hosting platform which is um, oh, it gives me another error sometimes this uh, hosting platform is great but because I use it on uh, I have it on my computer here in my studio, and then I have it up on my computer in my office, and then I have it on my phone because I have it in three places. It's constantly uh, logging me out of the uh, uh, show. So, yeah, I do have in the show notes, um, you can email us with questions or comments. The email's there. You can follow me on Instagram with that handle. Uh, we do have a website that you can submit questions to uh, undyinglight.org. And then it's also got the uh, kind of the three pieces where I kind of reside in um, from a ministry aspect from the Patreon page, buying Undying Light merchandise and the Logos Bible software uh, discount. So there's those three avenues as well. So if you have questions, by all means, um, go and send them to us. If you are interested in supporting the show, uh, you can do so. You can do it through the Patreon or you can do it through Acast, which is our hosting software. And you can uh, come alongside and uh, do the um, the support through Acast. I, I'm not real familiar with how that, that ultimately works, but uh, they I think they have a means that you can... If you go to the my show's website through Acast, if you just Google, it'll come up to the top and you can check that out as well. But Patreon's a little bit more streamlined, if you would. It gives you direct access into everything that I'm doing because that's where I produce all the content. So I just go there and you'll get an email alert when a new um, piece of content's produced and then you can go and read or watch whatever it is that uh, has been produced. So Enough of that. Ladies and gentlemen, we are working ourselves through the book of Revelation in this ridiculously long series. And I say that because we are we've broken the 30 episode mark, I believe, and we just are continuously um, moving through the series and we've been in it for quite a while now. And I maybe it's just me. But uh, I know at some level it can become um, it can become tiresome. You know, it could be like, oh, my goodness, there's more content in this and it just doesn't seem to end. And and I think, you know, when we set this out and I did the polls and that and everybody was like, no, dig deep into it, spend the time on it, go through everything as meticulously as, as possible. And so it's what we've done. We've produced you know, a lot of content in regards to how we're handling this topic. There's much more, again, as I've always said on pretty much every show, there's much more that can be had than just what we're producing on this simple show. You know, there's classes that, you know, we'll spend an entire semester looking at just 
particular aspects of what we've used in one hour shows. And so again, you know, there's much more to it. So if you're interested, dig deeper, you know, immerse yourself into what is actually out there and available to you. Don't just take what I say as the only point of knowledge, because again, there's much more out there. So we are working through the fourth chapter in the book of Revelation today. I think I said last week that we were going to go all the way through chapter six, but I rechecked kind of the pro the like the progress map of how I was doing this, and I overshot that. So we're only going to go to uh, chapter five, verses one through seven today. So we're going to talk on the throne in heaven, the weight of glory, and the lion and the lamb. That's going to be our topic for today. It's going to take us through the seventh verse and the fifth chapter. There is still a ridiculous amount of content here. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get into it uh, and we're going to see how it takes us. I don't know if it's going to be an hour long show as we've already spun our wheels for 12 minutes now. But uh, uh, I want to see if we can get this under an hour today. That would be wonderful. But we're going to see what we get. So. Starting at the first verse in the fourth chapter, this is what John writes. After this, I looked up and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven, which uh, with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne... Uh, There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes All around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the first eight verses in chapter four. So we will visit uh, six through 11. It's a short chapter. And then we will look at verses one through seven in chapter five. But in order to explain these first eight verses, there is a ton of happening. Look, the book of Revelation is not an easy book to take on. There is a ton of weird things happening. I mean, just take this these verses, for instance, four living creatures with <laughs> full of eyes in front and back. And then each creature we have a, a, a that is like a lion. And remembering the phrasing that we used in the first episode, this isn't a literal interpretation. It's not a literal lion. It's a like a lion. And so often artists will, you know, render 
something that is similar to a lion or a lion. Uh, we have Lycanox. And this is interesting. The third living creature with the face of a man. And then we go back to the description of like an eagle in flight for the fourth creature. Each of them have six wings and are full of eyes all around and within and all day and night. They never cease to say. So there's a just that, you know, a uh, couple of verses there. You, you just read this and you're like, what did I just read? My brain is melting. Now, here's the really beautiful thing. If you remember, we were back in the Old Testament and we talked about the book of Ezekiel. Well, we didn't go all through the book of Ezekiel because there is a ton happening in that book in regards to eschatology. And we we highlighted some of the the more often misunderstood scriptures. Um, we talked about how some of this stuff is is often challenging to the reader and or can be used to be twisted in position to reflect a certain, you know, eschatological perspective. But let's look at Ezekiel a little bit here. Uh, in 593 BC, a Jewish priest named Ezekiel was in exile outside of Babylon, where he had been taken into captivity. There, beside the uh, Charbel Canal, the hand of the Lord came upon Ezekiel, as verse 1 3 states, and he saw a remarkable vision. Emerging out of a storm came a bright light flashing like f- uh, with fire together with the likeness of the four living creatures, verse 1 5 each with four wings in the faces of a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Now, we're going to explain this a little bit, but we do know that there are some minor differences between what Ezekiel sees and what the book of John, or what John writes here in the book of Revelation. But just because, for instance, in verse 1-5 in Ezekiel, it states four wings, but John is writing six, it doesn't mean that they didn't have six total wings. We're getting just Ezekiel's perspective and what he sees, and now we're seeing John's. Over their heads uh, was a crystal sea and surrounded by a rainbow. There was a likeness of the throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance, as verse 126 states. Over the centuries, Ezekiel's visions so perplexed the Jewish rabbis that some sought to actually remove this book from canon. Uh, one rabbi in particular, Hananiah ben Hezekiah, is said to have burned 300 barrels of oil in his lamp by staying up late, seeking to make sense of this prophet. Its true interpreter, though, was not to come until the New Testament. And we see that here as we get into the fourth chapter in the book of Revelation. And so, Throughout these, you know, 500 and 600 years or whatever of time between the time Ezekiel was written and the book of Revelation was written, many people are just flabbergasted. They're just like, I don't get this stuff. You know, and this particular rabbi, again, you know, it's just said we don't have definitive proof, but to burn 300 barrels of oil in his lamp staying up late, studying just this single prophet. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. I mean, if only we had theologians today that would pour in that much time studying the word of God. I mean, I think we'd have a different church 
not saying that all theologians don't do it because there are many out there who do study immensely, but many in the church mindset don't, sadly. That's a different problem for a different day. Um, so as we continue here, we see that his vision, uh, that Ezekiel's vision displays the sovereignty of God in a time of woe. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, uh, emperor ruled from his throne and uh, the trials facing Jerusalem ultimately came from God's more glorious throne. Uh, it, this was Ezekiel's great hope in his exile far from home that even in judgment, God can still be faithful to his covenant promises to save. And so that's kind of what we're going to get here in the book of Revelation in this chapter is that God is still sovereign and regardless of what happens, he is the one in control of it. So as the book of Revelation uh, begins its series here with these prophetic visions of events past uh, of present and future, the apostle John receives virtually the same vision as the one represented to Ezekiel seven centuries earlier. So it's 700 years, my bad. While some details are different, the similarities between Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4 are striking. The message from uh, for John was the same as Ezekiel's. Though John was in exile on Patmos uh, and the churches in Asia face, faced looming persecution from the throne of Caesar in Rome, it was God who truly reigned over history. This message is important for today's Christians who are pilgrims in this world. That is not our home as we prepare to face tribulation in our own day. And we also know that our trials are all controlled by God and thus are certain to result in salvation and to overthrow evil. So this, this is the promise. And we said this at the first episode in the book of Revelation, that Christ is the victor. All glory and power and victory belong to him. And so I think sometimes people get caught up in the imagery used in this book. And then we like to say, well, you know, this is happening in this world. So it must mean that this part of revelation is happening right now, or it's going to happen. And we better be prepared. The third building of the temple and the priests are coming back to do sacrificial, uh, you know, atonement. And, you know, so we get this kind of like radical take when in reality, we, we, we've kind of missed the bigger picture. The bigger picture of the book of Revelation is summed up in these words. Christ is the victor. God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows what is going to happen. And at the end of the day, it is nothing that we can control or change. And that's the reality I feel that many try to um, look past, not necessarily on purpose, but they, they want to find deeper meaning. They want to find out, well, if this is happening in my lifetime, is there going to be X, Y, and Z happening? You know, are we going to face this immense persecution and the mark of the beast and we're all going to be put into jail or into slave camps and then we're going to be beheaded and all this stuff because we didn't take the mark of the beast? There's people out there that literally live in that fear, constant fear of that. And, and, it, and it kind of bugs me in reality to to try and work through this series because I know many do. I mean, I have good friends who are, you know, probably would fall into the John MacArthur line of a leaky dispensational premillennialist. Uh, and, and that's perfectly fine. But I really haven't found anybody yet to hold to a true full-fledged 
dispensational premillennialist position. I have yet to find one. So if you are out there, message me. I'd love to talk to you because I, I just I can't fathom based upon how we've read through scripture. And again, I've said it from the beginning in this series, your hermeneutic depends and changes the outcome of how you will read and interpret this text. And so my hermeneutic uh, shows the, the, the process that I'm going to take to deciphering whether text is to be taken literally or figuratively or descriptively. And it just allows me to come in and say, well, this particular text obviously isn't giving us a literal picture being drawn. It's something that's symbolic or, or otherwise. And so for those who hold to this, to the full position of dispensationalist, um, I would vision to say many in that probably live in fear of what's going on in the world. Well, I mean, it's not any different than what the early church experienced when they were under immense persecution. And in fact, the early church had no rights to preach what they're doing. Whereas here, in at least in the West, in the United States for that, you have freedom of religion for now, and you have the ability to gather and preach in your churches in, you know, for now. But there are places that are trying to cut that out because they don't want it. They, they want their own agenda to come forward. And they know that Christians are basically the last front, if you would, between them and, and, you know, ceasing or controlling full power or capturing full power. Now in Canada, this is a different problem because now we have churches out there being fenced off and, and being uh, shut down by, you know, their tyrannical ruler. Um, and so we have our brothers and sisters who are in Canada who are facing just incredible amounts of persecution. Not yet, you know, death, but um, Pastor James Coates was uh, in prison for a number of weeks. <clears throat> and many other churches are being entered and stormed by the police, the COVID police. And it's a mess. And so we know that there is persecution looming for God's church. And I would venture to say <clears throat> that the church in the West has been graciously blessed and has been given God's mercy longer than it should. And when persecution comes, the West will crumble. The church in the West will crumble. And by the church, I mean the image that we portray, these mega churches where thousands gather and God's love is just perfect and there's no wrath within God's love. And, you know, he loves you, man. He wants you to be healthy, wealthy and prosperous and all this other jargon. That's the church that's going to crumble. But God's true church, the one church that he has preserved, his true people, the elect, will continue fighting on and will continue gathering and worship, whether it's in a church building, whether it's in an abandoned building, whether it's in the woods, in a basement, wherever it is, they will gather and continue to share, preach, and worship God. And through all of this, God is going to cleanse his temple, cleanse the church, and eradicate the false teachers. And so I, I wouldn't be shocked if it comes in our lifetime because the West has had its opportunities to repent, and yet we continue to produce people like uh, T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick and Joel Olstein and Todd Whites and uh, Michael Todds and all of these Christine Canes and Beth Moores and all this other jargon out there, J.D. Green. I mean, I can just go on and on and on. We've continued to produce these people and put them into a position of power, and 
we just are basically shaking our fist at God and challenging him to come and, you know, test us because at the end of the day, we are, these people are preaching a different gospel. And Paul tells us in Galatians one, that those who preach a different gospel, let them be accursed because they go against what the true God says. And so we see this here and and we, we kind of caught wind of that as we read the seven letters last week, that God does not hold back his wrath forever. Uh, There is a time that he is, and we will see that he will pour out his wrath among those who proclaim to be Christians and who are not. And if you don't believe me, we can turn to Matthew 7 and read that, that there are many of those who profess Christ, but yet their hearts are far from him. And that is in conjunction to what Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, that as we are saved by grace, it is not by our own doings, it's not by our works, but once we are saved, our works will then be displayed an example. We will be carried into that. We will be longing to do that in one aspect or another. And so those who just make the simple proclamation with their mouth, but then go on to live in a world as the world will face this persecution or this judgment from God. So as I kind of preference this series, we're doing this in, in kind of in light of seven sections and each, each section will have three subsections. And I'm going to repeat that again. The book of revelation is broken into seven sections through its um, 22 verses of context. And so each of uh, the 22 verses, they're not equally split into three chapters a section. And some sections have a little bit more, a little bit less, but it's in fact broken into kind of a, a different aspect. So it's not by chapter, it's by content that John is writing. And so in each of the seven sections, we're taking that and splitting it into three separate um, three separate shows, if you would, to give us a total of 21 shows for this, um, for this little series. And so, um, each section is presenting the history of the church age from God's perspective in heaven. These seven cycles become increasingly intensive, intense as they advance and they increasingly narrow their focus towards the end of history. The key of identifying the sections is to note where Christ's return and final judgment are described. Dispensationalists will read Revelation as one continuous history from chapters 1 to 22, resulting in complex and confusing explanations for the reoccurring depictions of Christ's return and God's final wrath. Revelation makes much much better sense, however, when we recognize seven sections that present parallel descriptions of history each with its own perspective. And so we wrapped up our first of the seven sections last week when we concluded the letters. Chapter four begins a the next section. And, and the reason I'm saying this before we really get into the text deeply is because it, it pays us to understand that if, you know, if we were to read it from a dispensationalist perspective, we're going to read it one kind of regurgitation of time and and if then if we try to then we try to sift it out and we really it just becomes confusing and 
And that's why I was saying if you are if you really hold to a to a true value of dispensationalism, I'd love to talk with you because, in fact, I'd really like to get you on the show maybe at some point because I just don't see how we could go to the text and say, well, you know, these things have to happen or these things are happening and this is literally what it means and you know it it really just is it becomes confusing um and complex trying to explain how all of it would work out in regards to this so chapter 4 verse 1 begins the book's second section a cycle that modest uh, modestly begins looking forward into history Jesus summons John saying, I will show you what must take place after this. And so chapters four and five depict the present reality at the throne of heaven. And chapter six begins with showing the breaking of the six seals of God's plan, concluding with the wrath of the lamb from which the wicked vainly seek to hide as verses 16 and 17 in chapter six uh, describes. Chapter 7 concludes the second section with the phrase of the redeemed in the glory of the age to come. So knowing what is to come, we can understand uh, why this vision focuses on the, the throne of heaven. This is where we start in verses uh, in chapters 4, 1 through 8. Uh, William Hendrickson writes, The purpose of this vision is to show us the in beautiful symbolism that all things are governed by the Lord on the throne. The visions that follow involve increasingly frightening scenes. The throne in heaven is therefore shown first to give comfort to believers in the midst of deadly trials. As Psalm 99.1 puts it, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. And so this vision begins with John looking and behold a door standing open in heaven. Like many prophets of old, such as Isaiah and Ezekiel, and like Moses who were summoned atop Mount Sinai, John is called into God's presence by the voice of Christ. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. An upward glance is often a sign of a new perspective, just as the trumpets herald a new revelation. And for these, John will be admitted into the heavenly tabernacle where God is enthroned in glory. This door is the third mention is the third mentioned in Revelation. The first door is the opportunity for ministry in three eight. The second is the closed door of the church in which Christ knocked for admittance in three twenty. This door of Revelation is so that John could see the things of God. Dispensationalists wrongly interpret John's summons as the rapture, though of the church at the end of times. This completely misreads the text. Instead, John is, quote-unquote, taken up into spirit, as 110 says, who acted on John's senses and understanding so John could be symbolically present in the true tabernacle above. And so this is exactly how we start this next section, this next point in the book of Revelation. We are at... The presence of God, we see that this is where God sits and acts. We see that this is the focus going forward uh, in this next section. And we will go through the seals 
and understanding that how God is still sovereign. He is in control. And uh, so this is the beginning scene. Now that we've moved past the seven letters, this is the beginning scene here. We are taking with John here as he's writing us later after this, um, this incident. We get to see what John experienced. And so Revelation 4 is justly considered as one of the greatest chapters in the Bible alongside John 3, Romans 8, Hebrews 7. It shows not only the sovereignty of God over all history, but also the worship of God is the central activity of history. This point is depicted in the verses 4 through 6. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. As John's vision centers all creation on the realities of heaven, so also the heavenly occupation of the worship of God is creation's highest calling. And we see that in uh, verse 8, part C, I'd say, where these living creatures, these four living creatures are constantly, never ceasing, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so we can easily see right off the bat that God is sovereign. He controls everything from his throne. He's, he sits on this throne, never leaving, and he is constantly being worshipped. And that is the central piece to history. And so I kind of want to walk through these uh, eight verses here a little bit. Um, So now, as I mentioned, the door opening symbolizes John being granted access into God's heavenly throne. Uh, This does not refer to any particular rapture as some, again, who would signify the, the extreme side of dispensationalist would try to pin. Nobody's being taken up with John. And in fact, the text says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. So John is not taking up bodily because we can go and argue back to the bodily resurrection as we talked about through Paul's eschatology and the resurrection of Christ. And so we can go back and argue that, that the resurrection will be bodily. So when we come into presence of God, it will be in bodily form. But John here says he is in the spirit. So there's no other people being taken with him. And in fact, we have to understand again, the greater context to this verse. And so, you know, we can talk about this forever and ever, but moving on, we see that his encounter is there's this throne and he is uh, surrounded by its magnificence. I mean, there's, uh, I can't really give you words to describe the, the glory that John is witnessing. I mean, we, we get kind of some of it here. The appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald and around the throne were 24 thrones. And so we get this like picture of just the magnificence of God, the glory of God being displayed here. Uh, as verse three states, precious gems highlight the splendor of the divine presence, just as the breastpiece of the old Testament high priest was similarly adored uh, as Exodus 28, 17 and 39, 10 through 14 state. So this description also depicts God's holiness. This is, I mean, again, the magnificence of God that John is part- uh, being able to see is just, uh, leaves one speechless. 
And I'm amazed that like, you know, it, it really is it's amazing to me that John can come back through, you know, after this and write all this down. Obviously, we know that the Holy Spirit working through John to recount this and, and, and provide these accounts for us today. But it just is like John got to witness this, all of these events taking place and just a, what a marvelous uh, opportunity. So the 24 thrones representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles of Jesus together they represent all of God's people in both Old Testament and New Testament times. And so that's where we get the 24 thrones. So we've got the 12 tribes and then the 12 apostles of Jesus. Now we know that John isn't yet dead and therefore interestingly enough could you say that that throne was vacant uh, of of one of the apostles thrones that John wasn't there? It's quite possible, but we know that because it doesn't say here anywhere. It doesn't say that these thrones are full because if it was, then John would obviously be dead, but he's not. Uh, We just have 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. Well, it's interesting, right? It says seated on the 24 thrones or 24 elders. I don't know. That's again, we, we, I mean, it, the text says one thing, but John's here and John was an apostle. And so how do you articulate this? Well, it says elders here and uh, it can get into some interesting, interesting theology, if you would. I'm trying to kind of really find this, the right words to use. So the terms in Israelite leadership are often used interchangeably so that officers were not easily ranked. However, during the tribal periods, Exodus 1 through 1 Samuel 8, the general order seems to be one elder of Israel, two tribal leader, three clan leader, four household leader, five household member, six sojourner. On an organization of the people in the wilderness, uh, gives an illustration of civil leadership in the kingdom period. Stating Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel regarding households. uh, There's a little note here. I'm not going to go there, but most Israelite leaders could also act as military commanders during the kingdom period. Other administrative officers offices were added to supplement traditional tribal administration. So that's kind of a little bit of history on how these terms were used. And so, you know, it says that here there's 24 thrones and on the thrones were 24 elders. And so, you know, as I'm just kind of looking at uh, some of the kind of depictions here, I'm going to pull another source because I, I don't know if I quite agree. I, I mean, I would, I would say that the 24 is made up of the 12 tribes and then the 12 apostles, but if if all 24 thrones, because it doesn't say, it just says that we're seated on the thrones, we're 24 elders. And so it would depict that all 24 thrones are full. And so I guess I have to recount my previous statement that I, that uh, John's throne might be vacant because I mean, the question is, and this is really picking at straw here, was John's throne, uh, you know, had somebody seated on there? Was there a representative for John's position? I don't know. Let's look at another source here. It says another reason to be confident that 24 elders corresponded to the church is the description that John highlights. They were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
This represents the consummation of salvation promised and begun on earth. The white garments signify the righteous granted to Christians through Christ, as well as their calling to holy lives. Jesus wrote to Sardis that those who have not soiled their garments will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. A crown is a reward for true believers who in Christ triumph over sin. Be faithful unto death, Jesus wrote to Smyrna, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus had promised at the end of the seven letters that the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so I would argue that it probably not even, you know, the 24 is represented by the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, because again, we again, and this is just me kind of learning as you go through this show with me, because sometimes I can even be convinced otherwise by just looking at my, my study notes that I have on my screen as I'm, you know, walking through this context, because I, you know, when I do these shows, I have my Logos Bible software up. I have access to five or six study Bibles and commentaries and other notes that I have jotted down from other sources. And then I have my Bible open on the same screen. So I have multiple sources that I can juggle back and forth. And one of these, like I said, one of these uh, points really just doesn't seem to sit well with me now that I've investigated a bit further. And so you'll hear me learning as you learn. And it's that's perfectly okay because again, it does not. The text does not give us any insight into who these twenty four are. At least in this particular passage, it just says twenty four uh, elders. And then you know, like I said, I read that note on what elder represented in the early church. But again, if if all the thrones, the twenty four elders, are sitting on these thrones, then and if and if some if one note says that that is made up by the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles which i think i've heard that numerous times elsewhere that these are who make up these thrones but if that's the case and john's standing there who's one of the elders then sitting on john's throne if 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 it really is you know the apostles that have these thrones but then we can kind of re- rewind back to the letters that jesus wrote to these seven churches and I like this here, and uh, Jesus had promised at the end of his seven letters that the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne. So, again, another interpretation is that these thrones are representatives of the churches, those who have conquered. So I will gladly retract my earlier position and leave it up for interpretation for you. I, I think the more I look at this now and kind of look at how the text aligns itself, it can't possibly be the 12 apostles. It could very well be the 12 tribes of Israel. That, that could possibly be 12 of the 24. Um, but I'm just going to stick with that this is a representation of the church. And, you know, my my position could change. Again, this is not even secondary doctrine. This is just trying to interpret the text as we walk through it because it's complex and can get into some very, very deep waters, if you would, in trying to understand it. So moving on to verse five, we see these seven torches, seven spirits of God. We've talked about that a few times already on the show, but I kind of like verses six and seven here. And before the throne, there was 
a sea of glass-like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes before and behind. So we're going to get to the eyes in a minute. But this note on the sea um, normally is a symbol of chaos and evil. However, here, this sea is portrayed as tame and beautiful and thus non-threatening. Now we get to the four creatures. These angelic creatures, both human and animal features, are probably cherubim, since Ezekiel similarly describes such living creatures, as noted in Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 28, and again in 10, verses 1 through 8. Um, so these eyes symbolizes the unending vigilance of the watchers, as uh, Ezekiel 1, 18 through 21 state. Uh, they never cease. In heaven, God's praise never ends. Even now, it is ongoing. Holy, holy, holy echoes the worship of Isaiah behind, uh, beheld in the heavenly temple. So we noticed this already in Scripture, and we talked about it in when we looked at uh, Isaiah in this series. This threefold acclamation points to the three persons of the Holy Trinity. This vision of heavenly worship is the basis for the sanctus of the communion liturgy. So in kind of interesting, right? There's a actual liturgies built that encompass this type of worship. The holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And so the, actually, as you walk through the worship service template on these, um, it would uh, greatly draw upon the exclamations of these angels, these angelic figures in the worship context. So if you were to partake in one of these worships, it's going to be deeply rooted in scripture and praising of God. And so it's, they're, they're fun to be a part of. Um, I've been, I've done it a few times in my, my walk. So we get to this juncture here with the description of where John is, is at, right? And we've talked about the temple and we've talked about um, these angels these angelic creatures, these cherubim, uh, as, as Ezekiel calls them, you know, worshiping nonstop. And I kind of like how the the eyes here, right? It just says full of eyes behind and back. And it, you know, can point us to the unending vigilance of watchers. And the unending eyes, the unending watching it coincides with the unending worship of God, the Father, Christ, the Son, and the, God, the Holy Spirit. Um, but let's read here to the end of chapter four. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, who receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So we get this continuous um, worship and continuous notion that um, we are to continue to worship God and this is continuously happening in the uh, in the throne room and it's going on even right now as we wait for the heavens to shatter. And we have this notion here, right, that these 24 elders will fall down and cast their crowns. Now, I've heard a few people try to say that their whole premise to their Christian walk is to acquire crowns. Well, if we go back and we look at 
this text, um, it just simply says a crown is the reward of true believers who in Christ triumph over sin. That's how you get your crown, being a true believer. You don't go out and acquire crowns by your good works. You don't go out and acquire crowns by being obedient or being a pietist or any of this other thing. It's simply by being a true believer. And here we have these 24 elders who were, if we go along our chain of the church, these individuals are the, um, you know, triumphers over sin. They conquered that and uh, we have them casting their crowns below before the feet of God. And really in this motion here, we just have it a, a, a beautiful example of worship. So uh, in this chapter, John is describing heavenly worship that he saw in the Lord's throne room where all the saints and angels adore the Lord. Regular worship is a serious matter required by one of the Ten Commandments and described as an activity in heaven. Sadly, many people do not feel the twinge of conscience while skipping divine services. Even while present, they will often fail to focus on the promised blessings of such services. Yet Jesus continues to continuously calls us back to his presence. In fact, his forgiveness and promise of eternal life is the first order of business in the divine service. And that is why when I conduct a service, uh, I will constantly go down the line of calling and declaring you as a sinner and that Christ forgives you and calling him back into his presence. That is how we open the service in my church is laying the hammer down that you're a sinner and then turning around and declaring that um, your sins are forgiven. And that's how Christ is calling us. And so we see this beautiful depiction here in chapter four of what worship looks like going on here in the uh, in the throne room. This is a continuous thing. This isn't a one time event. This isn't just happening here, uh, but it is continuously um, going on currently as John writes and as we listen to this show today this is currently happening ongoing never ceasing and these elders are doing this as well they're casting their crowns down saying worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power god you created all these things and by your will they exist and were created and so they acknowledge god as a creator they acknowledge that he is divine and has the the only one with the power to do these things and so we will wrap up chapter four with that notion. We're going to move on to the next seven verses here uh, in chapter five. And we're going to look at the lion, uh, the scroll and the lamb. And so we're going to quickly walk us through this. So starting first verse, then I saw the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look on it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lamb of the, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered and so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And with seven horns and with the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. And he went 
and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. So again, we can, we can quickly move down through these few verses into verse six, because it's just kind of the descriptory manner of what's going on. Um, we see John is standing here now after, as this worship is continuing, we should pay note that this worship will never cease continuing as John is here in the throne room. Uh, so it says that, uh, and I saw him in the right, or then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So this is God and in God's right hand, there's this scroll. And then we have a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. And then we kind of have, there doesn't say silence, but we have this notion that nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open this scroll. And so John begins to weep. And because of this, one of the elders says to John, hey, weep no more, but you are standing in the presence. And I'm paraphrasing this, right? It says, weep no more. Behold, the lamb or the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. So he's pointing to Christ as being the conqueror. He has overcome death, sin, and the devil, and therefore is worthy to open its seals. And so then John says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the a lamb standing, a lamb, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out from all the earth. And he takes the scroll in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And so we had this kind of descriptive measure here of Jesus Um you know, taking the scroll from God. And then in next week we will actually open the scrolls. But uh, so verses two and four, this strong angel, though John does not explicitly say so is likely that this angel is a different rank than the living creatures described earlier in verses six and seven in chapter four, different angels fulfill a variety of functions uh, as we will note throughout the book of revelation and other books in the Bible. Um, John continues to write that no one is found worthy, emphasizes that Christ's uniqueness, since he alone is worthy, and because of his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, he alone is fit to reveal and bring to fulfillment God's plan of redemption and renewal. And so, plain and simple, Christ is the victor. He is alone worthy. There is nothing else. And we even get these titles from the elder, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. This shows his messianic claim. He is, in fact, alone worthy of it. So between the throne and the four living creatures, Jesus previously said that he shares a throne with his father. Here, however, he is described as standing between God's throne. Accordingly, many interpreters understood this scene as involving a coronation or investiture of authority. One may see here a glimpse of what occurred in heaven as Christ's ascension. This lamb being slain recalls that not only was Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but also his resurrection. And we talked about the seven spirits back in the first uh, episode on Revelation. So here we get Jesus taking this his uh, the scroll, investing him as the glorified son of man, he alone is worthy of this, and he alone has the power to break these seals. And so that's it. We, we, we come to the end of this little section, and we just kind of are right at the building. This is the episode of the cliffhanger. 
because the scroll hasn't yet been broken, but we have him who can break the seal. And so this beautiful thing here is that we find out nobody on heaven or in heaven on earth or under the earth is worthy of this. And we get to this juncture that only Christ through his death and resurrection and ascension is indeed worthy. And so we have our conquering lamb. And I am very excited to dig into next week's text because we will start to break these seals and get to an understanding of how these will, you know, unfold in terms of the greater picture of redemptive history. And we'll probably look at some very dispensationalist perspectives and how some of these might fall in line well with, um, you know, understanding this text at greater length. So ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude today's episode as we have reached the end of this particular section uh, and wrapping up verses one through seven in chapter five. And uh, again, we'll probably come back to this type of stuff over and over. As I mentioned, when we did Ezekiel, we would talk about Ezekiel when we got to the book of Revelation and we did today. So we're right at the hour mark. So we did well. I'm very happy with how we we probably actually more about 45, 50 minutes, 50 minutes or so of content because we had about eight or so minutes of early uh, jabbering. So, ladies and gentlemen, again, if you have any questions in the show notes, you can get a hold of me. Uh, If you're interested in how you can come alongside and sponsor this ministry and be a part of everything that we do, that information as well is found in the show notes. You can also just DM me with additional questions. And uh, that's about it. We will get to the breaking of the seals next week as we will look at, um, I believe, to verse 11 in chapter 6. And so we will make ourselves well into that. And then in two weeks, we will wrap up the end of chapter 7. Yep, chapter 7 in two weeks. So moving right along. And uh, we will conclude the show uh, on track as we make it through these seven sections. So that's it for me, ladies and gentlemen. Until next week, God bless. Hope you have a blessed weekend and continue to dig into scripture because that's where we find our peace, our comfort, and our hope. God bless. We'll see you all later. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 